A Suriname Airways flight is doing an approach to Paranibo International Airport when they crash. What caused this flight to end so abruptly? Welcome back to the Hard Landings Podcast, everybody. I'm Nick. I'm Miranda. And I'm Christy. Hey! Hello. Welcome back to the world of funness. This is your last day of freedom. Yeah, and then when this airs, it'll be my first day of real work. Yeah, you'll be oh back at gosh. school. At the new job. Mm-hmm. How exciting. I'll have kids. We'll see if I want to toss myself off a bridge or not. <laughs> We're going to see how things go with middle schoolers now. Yeah, because middle schoolers are... So much fun. Uh, I'm not looking forward to the smell. Because <laughs> middle school Or the sass Listen I can sass other kids back That's fair The sass doesn't I'm like I had a kid Sorry We're already getting off track <laughs> I had a kid When I was teaching elementary And she was like Well I don't want to do that I'm like Well if I was asking you a question I would have requested an answer But I'm not asking you You're gonna do it Exactly <laughs> So I'm not super worried about that I am Like I said Worried about the smell Your <laughs> Life is the one that's revolving around all sorts of new stuff right now because you've yeah. got that and then you got a cat. I did get a cat. Miranda got a kitty cat. I got a cat. Her name is Nina. She's very nice and sweet. She will never be a problem quite like this right below the microphone right now. She <laughs> So she's an attention hog, but sh- if you don't pet her for a while, she kind of goes and just lays by you. Yeah. She doesn't like aggressively be like, I want your attention. This one gets aggressive for a little while and then eventually she starts to chill out and then she leaves. Mm-hmm. So I, it's but- just getting from this point where she's currently running into my microphone consistently all the time and also running into me while I'm trying to read to getting her to lay down and just be. She also has double ear infection. Yep. yep that's How funny. is getting her to take her medicine? Oh, she hates it. <laughs> as soon as the liquid goes in her ear, she's like, ah, ah, ah. <laughs> anyway. anyway. Wow. Super off track already. We didn't Seems you- to be a, a theme, by the way, because I've edited the last couple of episodes. I'm like, oh my God. This is just our lives right now. <laughs> okay. Well, going okay. back on track. So we got a lot of stories for July. We are recording those tomorrow. Yes. So two weeks ago from when you're hearing this, we are accepting stuff for August and or September, depending on how many stories we get within a month period. Right. And also how much time we have. Yep, that. Because <laughs> that's basically the deciding factor right now. Yes. Because I went from a four-day work week to a five-day work week. And that does make a really big difference for us, because she usually took care of all podcast stuff on her one day, yeah, like off. one weekday off. So now it's like, okay, now we're going to have to like really figure out some new scheduling. We'd have to like timing. do it the day before that day. Right. I mean, I could do it when I got home from work. Yeah, but it's still, you're still losing the majority of a day. Yes. So, so I can't like just finish editing stuff. Right. If we needed it or no, I don't have that option. So right. Life we'll is fi- fun. We'll figure it out. Yep. All of our schedules have changed a little bit. Yours has stayed relatively consistent, but. Yes, it has. That being said, if stuff comes out, like merch and stuff doesn't get to you right when you think it's supposed to, we will send it. We'll let you know when we send it. We try to send merch out at least once a month, so we'll yeah. do it. If for the month of July, we'll probably do it at the beginning of August. And ducks. We just ordered ducks. We should be getting them in in the next couple of days or so, so we'll send all of that stuff out at the beginning of August. So if you haven't gotten it yet, don't worry. We haven't sent it yet. <laughs> 
Right. It's all coming still. Calm down. <laughs> if you have you your order. Buy merch from the page. It doesn't come from us. It comes from a company. But any merch you get from being on Patreon, you won't get from us until probably the middle of the next month after you join. it does come from us. So... And we are busy people and Very. have jobs and don't have a lot of time. I was out of town two separate times in a week. I can't tell you how difficult that is. Like We're bleh. lucky we can even do this still <laughs> and not want to jump off a cliff. Okay? We're we, working on it, guys. We're trying our best. A lot of yeah. you are like, we get it, we understand, and I appreciate and I, that. We really appreciate that, but it is. So. It's a lot. All right. What are we covering today, Nick? Today, we are covering Suriname Airways Flight 764. Thank you to our listeners, Rui and Alan. Uh-oh. Yeah. <laughs> you know. If she any, knew right away what that meant. Uh-oh. If any of you have been here for any length of time, you know that any recommendations by Alan are going to make Miranda mad. And this is not an exception. This is definitely not an exception. This specific Alan, because we have two Alans. But no, this is but that But this is Alan. our listener, not our patron. Right, this is that Alan. This is that Alan. <laughs> this is that Alan that definitely wants to make you mad and definitely will. Yeah. <laughs> Lives for the rage. Well, that's good, because you're going to rage. Oh, great. It probably won't be much during my part. You'll see. I mean, I, I really didn't. Oh, it's 100% in my part. Oh, I know. I know. We'll see if you catch on to anything in my part, but I kept it pretty inconspicuous. This accident occurred on June 7th of 1989. This was a Douglas DC-862 with the tail number November 1809 Echo. Strange thing already. We'll catch on to that later. This is a flight from Amsterdam. Schiphol. Schiphol Airport. In the Netherlands. Which is a disaster right now, if you haven't seen the news. Oh my it's like God. most airports right now are disasters. Particularly so. a lot of the ones in Europe, though, the big ones. Amsterdam cough, has Heathrow, had some... Cough. Yes, Heathrow's having some extreme issues. Frankfurt's having some extreme issues. And Amsterdam is having some crazy issues. <laughs> we'll talk a little bit about that in the post episode. So this is a flight from Amsterdam to Zanderidge Airport in Paramaribo in Suriname. For those of you that have no idea where that is. Like me. <laughs> it's on the northern edge of South America. Oh, Correct. Okay. It is in the Amazon. Pretty much coastal. the entire country is in the Amazon rainforest. It is, yes. No, the entire country is in the Amazon rainforest. <laughs> is it a pretty small country? Not that small, actually. I mean, it's small, but it's not that small. It is 63,251 square miles. So it's about 60% of the size of Colorado. Yep. No, so it's not that big as countries go. Yep. This city in particular is, I believe it's the capital, but it is a major city on the coast okay. of Suriname. Suriname Airways hired the crew from ACI, or Air Crew International, which is based in Florida, which means that they had hired an all-American crew. Okay. So Could be worse. That's a thing. That's a thing. <laughs> <laughs> we'll say more than that. The captain for this flight is Wilbur, or Will Rogers. Yes, he was by Will Rogers. He was 66 years old at the time. The captain had 19,450 hours with 8,800 hours on the DC-8. Correct. Okay. The first officer for this flight was Glenn Tobias. He was 34 years old. At the time, he had... About 6,600 hours with an unknown amount of time on the DC-8. That is correct. Well, that's not great. No, it's not good. These kinds of things kind of happen sometimes in accidents. We've never really talked about this a whole lot, but, but if, if the logbook is we in the airplane, we do on occasion. Yeah, if if it if they can't if the logbook went with them and the airplane crashed and it was completely 
destroyed, like, they don't have the record. Right. The reason <laughs> that they came with an about number means that at some point in time, they had a rough, they had a number from him. Yeah. And then they had a rough idea of how many hours he's accrued since then. And that's about all they can muster. Muster. So yeah. that's usually how things go. Random question. Nowadays, with electronic log books, uh-huh. are the privacy policies in place on those such that the NTSB can request that information from the app? I am not sure. That is a good question. I am not sure how that works. I feel like they should be able to as long as they get permission. Or it's subpoenaed, but yeah. I mean. Right. That is a potential. Also, I mean, depending on the situation, they might be able to get it pretty easily anyways. Yeah. But Also, if it's pertinent information. Yeah. Sometimes it's not, depending on the accident. Yeah, exactly. Anyway. Anyways. And then the flight engineer for the flight was Warren Rose. He was 65 years old at the time. Wow, pretty old crew. Yes. We'll talk a lot more about that later. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. The flight engineer had 26,600 hours. Wow. That's a lot of hours. But only 720 hours on the DC-8. So not very many on the DC-8. No. How new was the DC-8 at the time it of was this not. accident? It was not. Okay. <laughs> I'm just checking because sometimes no. that's a factor in yeah. why they don't have a lot of hours on a certain aircraft. Right. Now, this is 1989. The, DC, the DC-8 was already pretty old, although this variant, the 62 variant, wasn't as old at all, but the DC-8 had been around since, I think, I don't remember when the first one was, at the late 50s, Oh, I believe. Oh, well then, it's yeah. been It's been, they're old. They had, okay, this was just, they didn't have a lot of time in the aircrafts. First flight was 1958. 1958, okay. yeah, there you go. Yeah. So, yeah, see, there you go. So, it, it's, yeah, the DC-8 was not new. Okay. This variant was newer, though. At Amsterdam, 178 passengers and nine crew boarded the regularly scheduled flight to Suriname including a Dutch Surinamese football team based in Amsterdam called the Colorful Eleven. You can get more into that later, but it was a football team that was founded in Amsterdam for the, what would you call, maybe underserved portions, mm-hmm. underserved communities. Gotcha. Okay. And it was founded by a group of professional football players. But they, one of the communities that they were primarily in, where they founded this Colorful Eleven group, is a community of Surinamese people. And this was one of the first games, for most of them, the first game that they were going to get to go play in Suriname. That's cool. That's tragic. Yeah, since it's on this podcast, I'm assuming it didn't have a great ending. No. And not to get too ahead of us on that, but yes. But to add to some of the tragedy, eight of their first string players couldn't travel for various reasons and didn't get to go on this flight. So second stringers got put on this flight instead. Eight of them out of the 11. Yikes. So that's unfortunate. The flight departed Amsterdam at 11.25 p.m. local time on June the 6th, so the day before the accident because it's 11.30 at night. The captain was to be the pilot flying while the first officer was to be the pilot monitoring for this flight. It's not actually a terribly long flight. It's long-ish, but I believe it was less than eight hours. I don't remember. I did the math, but I think it was... About six hours. That's not bad going That's not bad. Amsterdam no. to South America. Because it's straight down, basically. <laughs> oh, I understand. <laughs> so, it's, yeah. It wasn't actually a terribly long flight, in all things considered. The flight climbed to cruising altitude and cruised to Suriname normally. The flight then began descending into Paramaribo. 20 minutes before landing, the crew received the 0700 UTC time weather report for the Zanderidge Airport, which informed them that the winds were calm, but the visibility was just 900 meters due to fog. 
The crew were surprised by this, as they had been getting regular weather reports, actually, as they got closer. And the previous information they had gotten, and all of them prior to that, said that the visibility was six kilometers. So this was a relatively sudden change. Yeah. That said, while descending, the flight crew did have sight of the airport for quite some distance away. The flight crew had been made aware earlier that the instrument landing system for runway 10 was not working at the time and could not be used. The first officer restated this later after the surprise of the weather conditions, saying, quote, we don't legally have an ILS, end quote. So basically he's just saying, remember, we don't have an ILS. Yeah, we don't have a way to land with assistance. With an ILS. Yeah. There are other, of course, there are plenty of other actual instrument approaches, but this is the one of the highest precision there is. So right. that's a whole thing. A short time later, the tower controller cleared the flight to perform a VOR DME approach to runway 10. We've talked a lot about VOR DME approaches in the past. It's another form of approach, instrument approach, though this is far less than a precision approach. Basically, it gives you lateral guidance, but you have to use how far out you are from the VOR to gauge what altitude you need to be. Usually there's like a step. Yep. Yep. Procedure they have to use. Which is why this is considered a non-precision approach, because step approaches and step descents are definitely not precision. So, as an example, it could say when you're 15 miles out, you need to be at this altitude. When you're two miles closer, you need to descend this many feet. Right. And you do that in steps until you're down to the runway. Correct. And there are occasions where that VOR, that beacon that's sending the signal to give you guidance, isn't necessarily really on the runway. So it really gets you almost there, and then you should be able to see it. Right. And the other part of this that comes into play is what is called the minimum descent altitude. You are not allowed to descend below that altitude until you can see the runway. And this is used both for VOR and ILS approaches. They're just different altitudes depending on the approach procedure. Right. And we've talked, I mean, we've talked about MDA like a bajillion times. If this is your first episode... We've, I mean, when you go back and listen to stuff, you'll hear MDA all the time. And we literally talked about this kind of approach on a Miranda Sode, I think, two months ago. Mm-hmm. Due to some weird visibility stuff going on for a flight that I covered. So, yeah. if you're new here, that's what that is. Welcome back. <laughs> Welcome up. Thanks for up. listening. Yep, getting caught this up This was now. your tiny little lesson on what that is. Right. The crew acknowledged the VOR DME approach instruction and tuned this in the cockpit. The airplane entered the approach, and a short time later, the first officer reported, quote, runways at 12 o'clock, end quote, before commenting a minute later, quote, a little bit of low fog coming up, I reckon just a little bit, end quote. So did he see the runway? Yes. Yes. That was him indicating that the runway was there. Because sometimes it's just like, it should be there. No. But no, he he actually saw the runway. Yeah, that was him indicating that he could see it, and he could also see the fog. Okay. (laughs) I'll talk about this a bit more later, but this fog is very much just over the airport. Oh. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) You can see everything around the airport. You can see the lights for the runway. There's just, like, this bank of fog sitting on the airport. Yep. That's unfortunate. Uh Uh-huh. The flight crew was still able to see the runway, and once again, the first officer reported that it was still in sight. So he did it one more time after those. Moments later, the flight entered some clouds, at which time the captain asked the first officer to request that the tower controller, quote, tell him to turn the runway lights up. Tell him to put the runway lights bright, end quote. Then, 
The ground proximity warning system began to sound several times. Glide slope. Glide slope. Before being deactivated. There's a few things there. We'll, we'll get into that later, but... Don't get ahead of yourself. No, that's a very key moment. A short time later, the first officer called out 200, meaning 200 feet above ground level on the approach, theoretically. Just 13 seconds later, the number two engine on the left wing, because this is a four-engine aircraft, remember, it's two on each wing. Right. The number two engine on the left wing, so the inner engine, contacted a treetop, separating the engine from the wing. The right wing, the other wing, then struck another tree, severing part of the wing, which caused the aircraft to almost immediately begin rolling to the right until the aircraft was inverted, at which point it struck the ground hard, breaking up and catching fire. The crash occurred at about 4.27 a.m. local time. Rescue operations began at 4.53 a.m. local time, which was activated by the air traffic controller at the airport. The firefighting operations began relatively quickly, but it was later determined that there was not enough firefighting equipment for the situation they had to handle, and there was no adequate firefighting plan as part of their disaster planning. Guess what comes up in the recommendation? How did you guess? (laughs) (laughs) The wreckage was in a V-shape about 335 meters long. The landing gear was found down and locked. Mind you, this means that the landing gear is pointed toward the sky because they are inverted when they came to rest. The upside down. So the landing gear was down and locked, but they were pointed up. When, 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 did, when did they flip over? When, when the right s- wing ripped off? When they oh. struck the tree and the right wing came off. So that'll do it. Yep, that'll do it. The aircraft broke into many pieces, with the largest being the tail section, which included the horizontal and vertical stabilizer, but otherwise pretty much everything else had broken into very small pieces. It said the cabin was destroyed. Completely. There are no pictures of this accident, by the way, at least not that I could find. The aircraft crashed just 2,800 meters short of the runway and just a few meters north of the extended center line. In all, 176 people perished in the accident, including all nine crew and 167 of the passengers. Seven passengers had serious injuries, while two had minor or none, but all nine had miraculously survived. Hmm. Initially, 15 survivors had been found, but seven later died. I couldn't figure out where this extra person was that survived out of the 15, because... Math is hard. Math didn't work out there, but we know that nine people survived. That's it. Sometime later, a child was found thrown from the wreckage, but was unharmed completely. That is insane. That is nuts. Football players who survived. Siggy Lenz would never be able to play football again due to a complicated pelvic fracture. Adu Nandalal suffered a partial spinal cord lesion, but eventually recovered and now walks with a limp. And Rajin Dehan would play again, but was forced to retire early as he could not reach his former level of performance due to a fractured vertebra. I am surprised any of them survived, considering 167 passengers didn't make it. That's on the Wikipedia page, so... Crazy. Anyways, a short time after the accident, the fog gradually became denser and denser, eventually reducing visibility to just 200 meters. So, things were changing pretty quickly, and this actually was kind of an issue while they were trying to do rescue operations as well. Yeah. It was one of the things that didn't help them in trying to save people. Right. Not to mention it's the Amazon rainforest. Correct. Which is a big factor in why this accident actually happened. Okay. So this investigation was performed by the Commission of Inquiry set up by the Surinamese government. I'm not surprised they don't have their own investigation entity because when was the last time you heard of a plane crash in Suriname? Right. I'm sure it happens on occasion. Mm -hmm. Both black boxes were recovered. Because the tail portion was fine. <laughs> it was intact. <laughs> Investigators used the last 10-ish minutes of the FDR for analysis, but there are some caveats to that. 
For one, the flight data recorder was rather primitive in that it only recorded the altitude, airspeed, heading, acceleration, and keying of the transmitter microphone. So not that much. No. Not having engine or control surface parameters be recorded can be a serious hindrance to investigators depending on the circumstances of the accident. Guess what's in the recommendations? Is it? It's not, but... It should be. This is something that's changed in any ways... Obsolete airplanes, new airplanes, this doesn't happen anymore. It's a further hindrance when one of those few parameters that do get recorded, one doesn't function, and in this case, that was the altitude. Oh, well, that's not helpful. Nope. You know, one of the most important parameters. probably the thing that they screwed up. Uh Uh-huh. You're not wrong. So, the cockpit voice recorder didn't have any such issues, thankfully. Both of these were sent to... Washington, D.C. to the NTSB. Good job. What do you know? For extraction and analysis. This analysis of this report was rather brief, along with the report as a whole. It was a whole 22 pages. So I'm going to glance over a whole lot, and we'll pretty much put the whole thing into layman's terms. Great. The wreckage was V-shaped and was about 335 meters long and up to 50 meters wide, indicating that they did not plummet from the sky. No. And the crew had some amount of control going into this. Yes. The landing gear was in the down and locked Position, indicating once more that there was control going into this descent. We had planned on landing. Yes. Everything so far indicates controlled flight into terrain, or... Seafit. Seafit. The analysis then jumps into the CVR, which is kind of wonky in terms of times given. Most reports will tell you what time something was said, either local time or UTC. This report says how many minutes and seconds into the recording it was said. Oh... And I'm not going to try to do that math. This is the worst kind of timing I think I've ever seen in a report. Like, in the story, they kept switching between local and UTC, which didn't help at all. This is why I don't actually know how long the flight was, because it didn't say. In the rough math, because they kept switching, I think it was about six hours. Anyways, that's even worse, because it's just timing counting up from when the recording when the recording started. started. Yeah. So the recording is 31 minutes and 46 seconds. Okay. Just for reference. You might recall that the initial weather reports the crew had 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 a visibility of six kilometers. Yes, that sentence was proper English. Yes, it was. (laughs) In flight, they then received the 0700 UTC weather report, which seemed to catch them by surprise, reporting 900 meters in dense fog, quarter cloud cover with a cloud base of 400 feet or 120 meters, and calm winds. The captain in particular seemed surprised, stating twice within seven seconds... At 8 minutes and 59 seconds into the recording, what happened with the 6 kilometers? They then discussed the published visibility minima as well as their fuel situation. The 900 meter visibility is a problem because the minimums for the VOR DME approach are 2,300 meters of visibility. So they shouldn't have been landing. You're correct. But for an ILS approach, it's only 800 meters. It doesn't matter, they're not doing an ILS approach. The co-pilot said twice at 10 minutes and 57 seconds into the recording, we don't legally have an ILS but then said we have to use it. This is the part I But they out. didn't! So the ILS, the they NOTAM did. that came out said that the ILS is transmitting a signal, but it is unreliable. So the captain agreed that they were going to use the ILS. They did do one. You mad yet, bro? <laughs> so they decided. Yep. With a instrument that is not giving correct information to use it because it fits so they could land. Uh-huh. Right? I mean, clearly there was it's, a problem with them oh. catching the ILS or something that caused it to hit the tree. Oh, but it Not gets, at all, actually. It gets so much worse. It gets worse. What does it get oh, it worse? Gets, that's just the very tip of the iceberg. 
Okay, so, a few seconds later, the co-pilot said, You can see the town over there. And later, it must be very localized, referring to the fog. He and the captain agreed that the fog must be right at the airport and that they could try to land. At 17 minutes and 28 seconds, the co-pilot even said, You can see the report down there, no problem. 19 seconds later, he says, That's right here, visibility won't be any problem. And the captain responded, Make a pass and uh, we'll land, that's all. The controller conveyed that they could expect a clearance for a VOR DME approach, and at 21 minutes into the recording, the captain said, put the ILS on my side. The tower issued a clearance to approach using VOR DME to runway 10 and reported the airplane in sight, so the captain asked the first officer, get the VOR on your side. So it seems like the captain wanted to use the ILS, which is not legally usable. Right. He was the pilot flying, and he put that on his side. Remember I said they tuned the VOR DME? They did, but they put it on the first officer's side only. Well, and they're cleared for VORDME. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Not the ILS. Correct. Which I thought was strange that air traffic control would clear them for an approach that is not legal at the moment. And this is... Is it not legal because based of the on the airline, or is it based on the airport? No, it's based airport. on the country. So The country's regulations require that they have it 20... What was it? 2300 2300 minimum. So why are they even letting anybody land, period? Correct. I so, have no idea. You're right. So they should be like, sorry, it's not legal to land here right now. You're going to have to do a hold. Here's the really gray area of that. Because it is up to the captain. The captain has final decision on landing. And in reality, this is the same case no matter when. We don't talk about this a whole lot, but air traffic control word is not God. Neither is the captain, but the captain has more say than air traffic control does. And if air traffic control gives you an instruction, but you don't it- like it, you can negate it as the captain because you, it's for safety of flight. So that also means that the air traffic control can allow them to land, give them the instruction to land. And the only thing they can really do is advise them, hey, this is not a good idea, but it's still up to the captain. I don't like it. So this is actually definitely not the first time that something like this has happened. I know. Obviously. And I realize that. But the other problem with this that I'm having really like a lot of troubles with mm-hmm. Is you know you're not allowed to use the ILS. You're using the ILS anyway. Mm-hmm. You know you're under minima mm-hmm. for the airport in the country. Yep. And you're being cleared for that specific minima, and yet you're going, it'll be fine. We can see there. It's fine, right? Right. No, it's not fine. If they're telling you that it's a certain visibility, you should take that into consideration for the safety of you and your passengers. We'll get to the point where that happens because that's. Why that happens. We'll, we'll get there. But there's... Everybody's in a state of, it'll be fine. And there's a reason for that. So, at 23 minutes and 7 seconds, the first officer says, we're at 9 DME. Meaning, 9 miles out on the DME. Right. We're supposed to turn at 7. Two minutes later, the first officer had to keep advising the captain on his turn, as the captain seemed to react slowly. These advisories sounded like, just keep on coming around on the 30 degree bank there, you'll be alright. Get it on up to 30 degrees. Furthermore, the flight engineer was calling out altitudes that didn't seem to be correct to the captain, but it's hard to say, since you know that parameter's not there. At 25 minutes and 50 seconds, he said, 2,000 feet. And the captain said, huh? To which the first officer responded, 2,000, 2,000. And the captain accepted that, saying, okay, you mean I went through it, so we'll come back. The first officer said, it's a level out. It's about 10 degrees to the right, level out, now you'll be all right. The first officer then switched back and forth between the VOR and ILS while talking to the flight engineer about it before the captain asked for a distance out and the first officer got back on the DME. 
At 27 minutes and 41 seconds, the first officer said, runway's at 12 o'clock. And a minute later said, a little bit of low fog coming up. I reckon just a little bit. Okay, it's down right, right there close to the runway. At 28 minutes and 51 seconds, the first officer said, glide slope alive. And the captain at 30 minutes and 9 seconds, if I get a capture here, I'll be happy. But 15 seconds later, I didn't get no capture yet. At 30 minutes and 48 seconds and 31 minutes and 2 seconds, the ground proximity warning system sounded, but the glide slope warning stopped at 31 minutes and 2 seconds, indicating that the crew probably deactivated it. So when a glide slope warning goes off, you are descending below the glide slope. And the glide slope warning, this was the little thing I said that's a really key moment. Because on a VOR DME, like we said, it's only hor- it's only lateral control. They should right. have vertical. a glide slope. So right. they shouldn't have a glide slope. GPOWS shouldn't be warning them, but that was the sign that they were using the ILS. ILS, yeah. My other question is, so you're talking about, they're calling out altitudes, which mm-hmm. you're supposed to be doing, period. But why is he thinking that he's not at the altitude they're calling? Will you get into that? Yes. Yes. Okay. Because that's confusing to me because the altitude, as far as I'm aware, is not, and I, I'm not familiar with the workings of a DC-8, but sure. it's like not done by the ILS, right? No. This no. is, there. he's uh, telling him radio altitude. Right. So, I don't know. It seems really weird that he's like, what? Like, no, that's where you're at. Which means no. they were monitoring, which I'm kind of surprised that they ended up being too low, but I'm sure we'll get to that. So yes. yes. At 30 minutes and 56 seconds and 31 minutes and 5 seconds, for, so around the time that the ground proximity warning system was going off, the captain said, tell him to turn the runway lights up and tell him to put the runway lights bright, which doesn't bode well for their ability to see the runway at the moment. Right. At 31 minutes and 33 seconds, the first officer called 200 feet putting them below the minimum altitude of 260 feet for the ILS procedure, as well as the 560 feet MDA for the VOR DME approach. And it turns out there's a really big reason why. And they tried to pull up at this point. They collided with trees 13 seconds later. So immediate concerns. One, flying the ILS when we know it's not working. Two, flying below minimums regardless of approach procedure without having visual contact with the runway. And three, ignoring the ground proximity warning system and silencing the glide slope warnings. Yeah, you shouldn't silence anything from the ground proximity warning system. No, not a good idea. Especially if you're it's, using a, uh, something you're not supposed to be using. Yep. Yeah, it's telling you something pertinent anyway. Well, but that kind of makes sense to an extent because they knew it wasn't working properly. So it might not be sending the right glide slope. Which is why you shouldn't be f- using it but also the altitudes that were being read out were a pretty good sign that they weren't here's my issue then because they were reading altitudes so why did they not catch that they were under minimums who freaking knows anyway let me keep going (laughs) but that's all from the cvr which doesn't always paint a full picture hardly ever so investigators sought the help of mcdonald douglas in reconstructing the final 10 minutes of the accident flight using the black boxes but again they were hampered by the lack of altitude data Given that this is C-fit, that would have been really helpful. Very. The following data points were used in the reconstruction. 1. Level terrain around the airport at 54 feet of elevation. 2. Altitude alert at 7,000 feet MSL at 21 minutes and 14 seconds into the recording. So, they knew the altitude at that point was 7,000. Distance calls based on the VOR DME approach. Standard pressure gradient. Winds calm. The FDR ceased recording at 31 minutes and 46 seconds. And the radar altimeter indicated 180 feet at impact. They only know that because it probably left an impression on the glass. 
Now, on that last point, 180 feet at impact. I know that sounds really high for impact with trees. It's hard for trees to be 180 feet tall. No, it's not. But this is the Amazon rainforest. Yeah. This is why 260 feet matters. From a brief Google search, super reliable, the trees in this part of Suriname are on average 30 to 40 meters tall with emerging trees between 50 to 60 meters tall. And 60 meters is 196 feet. So, very possible. Just to be clear, these trees are 200 feet tall. In case anyone was wondering. Yeah. So, the flight reconstruction did not reveal any more details, but confirmed what we knew. One, the crew knew the ILS wasn't authorized for use. Two, they flew it anyway despite only being cleared for VOR DME approach. Three, they deliberately descended through minimum descent altitudes or MDAs for either approach procedure. And lastly, the first officer thought they were too high, despite the alarm saying that they were below the glide slope. That's That's just so weird. That to me is just disorientation because the reality is this is a textbook definition C-fit. Uh-huh. Where they were completely in control and they had all of the information needed to know exactly how high and how far they were. Yep. At every given moment. And they knew. They knew. They knew how far they were. They knew how high they were. They had all that information. They were acknowledging it. They just decided to ignore it. So, too long, don't read or don't listen. The ILS wasn't working. They weren't cleared to use it. They used it anyway. And they messed that up, too. They didn't even follow the ILS procedure. Correct. Would it have changed things if they did? The FAA sent a test team to try the ILS, working as it was, which wasn't working, I mean, based on the NOTAM. They concluded that even with the faulty ILS, if they had adhered to the published ILS procedure, they would have landed. Yeah. It it wasn't that unreliable. Nope. Well, because eventually you would think they are at 260 feet. Eventually they'd be able to see the runway. Right. And then land. Mm Mm-hmm. Right. Yep. So, because they knew where it was, it's not the matter of fact of they didn't know where it was. Right. They knew where it was, and it got covered in fog, and so they were like, "All right, turn up the runway lights. We'll be able to see it eventually." But they weren't. Uh, clearly, no one was paying attention to altitude or the fact that they were underneath the minimum for any kind of procedure. Right. So, so obviously, we have you mad so far. Let's make so, it worse. How the did they mess this up so bad? Let's look at their training. How is it worse? We're going to make it worse. Let's look at their training records. Commence Miranda oh, Rage warning. The captain was not qualified to d- conduct this flight. Excuse me? He wasn't qualified at all. According to Suriname Law, Article 8 of the Decree of 27th of November, 1985, Senate Bill 1985, Number 69, quote... The holder of a pilot certificate is not authorized to act as pilot during commercial flights when he or she has reached the age of 60, end he quote. 66 years old. But that wasn't just Suriname law either. It was also United States and ICAO law and regulation. So how was he even employed? That's a great question. How? How? We'll keep going here. There's more to this. When interviewed, SLM said that they assumed that the operating permit issued by the FAA under Part 129 included permission to conduct international flights without applying the age 60 limit to the pilots. But flying Part 129 is only applicable to the U.S. of A, not Suriname aviation regulations, even if operating flights to the U.S. or in U.S. registered aircraft. Furthermore... Which this is a U.S. registered aircraft, mind you. Furthermore... Neither pilot had completed the required periodic proficiency check on the DC-8, so neither were properly certificated to operate this flight. They did their certification check on a totally different type of aircraft. Nothing even related to this at all. So, why, why, why? It gets worse. It does get worse. (sighs) Further interviews with the airline revealed that they had several problems with this captain in the past. One of three. 
One, at Miami, he had allowed the engines to develop to full RPM next to the terminal, contrary to existing directives, and ignored airport officials when they berated him for it. Yeah, this is just a no-no. Just don't do it. Two, at Belem Airport, the airplane left the runway and got stuck in the mud when the captain turned too sharply. And three, at Lisbon, he made a hard landing (laughs) (laughs) during a thunderstorm that burst the tires and damaged the runway. This incident was four months prior to the accident. So SLM, sir, and um, Airways asked ACI to stop using that captain, and yet he continued to be scheduled, despite protestations from Suriname. No action to change was taken. Because Suriname also didn't check. Suriname Airways didn't check. Okay, so let me sum this up. We got a captain that's too old for Make- U.S. standards and for international standards. Even to this day, actually, he's too old to be operating an airliner at 66 years old. We have a first officer and a captain that are not equipped to fly this actual aircraft. Correct. They are not supposed to be flying this aircraft, period. And we have a a captain that has several instances where he did not perform flights correctly and was asked to not be put on this airline. Correct. And yet was so anyway. Uh Uh-huh. That's what I got. You mad, bro? I don't understand. I don't understand how the FAA let that happen, how the company that provided the pilots let that happen, how Suriname Airways didn't double check and make sure that everything... It wasn't scheduled? Yeah. It's, it's like a bunch of... St- like. Congratulations. You have named every recommendation. <laughs> I'm just confused. Do you also... I don't understand. So it wasn't just Suriname that was pissed about this. So was the NTSB. So, next question. Do you read all of the NTSB recommendations to the FAA? I don't think so. Okay, let me go find those. Okay, okay, let's Let's take take a break. Take a break, and we'll come back. Miranda needs a drink. I already have one. I might need to get another one. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. We back? Yeah. Okay, we're back. Hello, all. Hello, all. This report does have everything. It has the findings, it has the recommendations, it has the probable cause, it has all those things. Which is a wonderful thing. So, that said, let's dive into the findings, because obviously there are some. These don't actually call out any of the normal findings that we have, with like the airplane certified, crew certified, and everything, because it's surprise! It's also important that the crew is not (laughs) properly certified. Nope, not at all. Not in the slightest. Which is... Relatively rare we talk about this. They found that the flight crew was aware that, one, air traffic control had cleared them for a VOR DME approach. Two, the reported weather was below the prescribed minima for the VOR DME approach. Three, the ILS was not to be used for operational purposes, which meant that the weather minima associated with the ILS were not applicable. Those are just really important things. Just really easy things of like, this should never even been attempted. Period. End of story. They did it anyways. The only thing that I can think is that whatever their alternate airport must have been, must have been far away. They had plenty of fuel, by the way. They had a lot. They found... It's so hard for me to believe it was so far away they'd run out of fuel before they get there. Right. Well, they they really had a lot of fuel. They 
the investigators actually found out that the right wing, which, yes, separated, still had intact fuel tanks with all the fuel in it. It still had an estimated 22,000 pounds of fuel on board. Oh, my God. They had plenty of fuel. You cannot tell me that they could not have gone somewhere else. Right. They could have. There aren't really many other large airports close to this one, and I understand that, but there's still probably one within a distance they could make. Which is why they had so much fuel. Right. They found that the captain decided to execute an approach procedure. However, that procedure did not follow the prescribed approach procedure for runway 10. One of the deviations involved not starting the procedure turn at the designated point. In addition, there was no adherence to the prescribed minimum altitudes, including the minimum descent altitude, or MDA, as evidenced by the crash location. The CVR analysis indicates that the pilot used information from the ILS in that process, although he knew that the ILS was not available for operational use. Especially noteworthy in that regard is the observation that various warning signals in the cockpit were either ignored or turned off. Very important. It's like... They are literally just ignoring the information that's there that they're not even supposed to be using. They found that the CVR information also indicates that the pilot was actually in the process of making a visual landing. So he was trying to do a VFR approach, shown by his confirmation that he had the field in sight and also his repeated request to increase the intensity of the runway lights. The refraction of light through the fog could have created a false impression of the real distance to the runway. As a result of the concentration on a visual landing during the final phase of the approach, little or no use was made of the information available in the cockpit which depicted the true position of the aircraft with regard to the runway. This is this one was really important to me because it really does highlight why they crashed to me. So they were literally ignoring everything in the cockpit. Right. Everything. They had all of that information. They were very well aware of the whole thing. They just chose to ignore it. And he chose to ignore it because at this point, he w- he had get their itis for sure. Oh, yeah. And he was just trying to make this landing, but he was trying to do it visually. Which Why is, would you do that? Which Fog. is interesting, because they were trying to use the ILS, right. which they weren't supposed to be doing. And then they ignored that, too. Well, and if and, you're going to be doing a VORDME, if they decided to just, you know, forgo the fact that they're not supposed to do that either, then maybe I understand that, but you're not following the procedure. So the airport's MDA. in the fog. You can't do a visual approach either. You just can't. You can't mix approaches. That's not how this works. It's got not three different things going on right now. This isn't now. choose your own adventure. No. Okay. <laughs> this is you do this or you do this. And either way, if you don't see the runway, you do a go around and you either try to land again. More importantly, well, they just don't do it. <laughs> well, even, even in choose your own adventure, you pick a path and you stick with that decision. You don't go back and change your mind later. And they were doing three different things. Kept switching between three different things. And... They should have done the fourth thing, which was not do it. Yeah, but they, di- they didn't do that. <laughs> no, so. that's that's the whole thing there. And the whole thing about light refraction and whatnot in the fog, it's very true. It's very possible. This is actually a very real phenomenon. And I don't remember what it's called, but where you can see the lights through the fog. So it gives you a false sense of depth and perception yeah. based on where that, those lights appear to be in the fog. And so you actually have no idea how far you are from the runway, for example, or how far you are from those lights. Then suddenly they were too low and too far. <sighs> they found that the captain was aware of the fact that he was proceeding below the, quote, normal, end quote, glide slope angle, since the appropriate warning signals were audible in the cockpit. Yeah. He knew. He did. And he turned it off. Yep. At every indication. They found that it is noted that during the descent and approach coordination in the cockpit was very poor, 
At the same time, the captain was slow in the performance of certain tasks or failed to make proper use of the information displayed on the instruments. Again, ignored. They found that according to binding regulations, the captain was not qualified to act as pilot in command of Flight 764 due to his age beyond 60 and his most recent proficiency check flight on an aircraft other than a DC-8. Yes. Duh. That makes you against the rules that, in any country. On top of the fact <laughs> that he, they also asked not to let him fly with them again. Right. So now here comes all the fun stuff. They found that ACI failed to furnish SLM with a qualified and properly licensed pilot in command in accordance with the contract. They also found that the company failed to verify that ACI assigned qualified and properly licensed flight crew members to conduct the company's flights. So it goes both ways. ACI didn't assign the right people, but also Suriname Airways didn't check ACI in this. They didn't act like they didn't do any kind of oversight on this. Right. They also found that it was not clear who was directly responsible for the American crew and the exercise of control over training, competency, route checks, etc. What they did find out, and they don't really talk about this much, but I'll, I'll read the next one and then we'll talk about this. They found that SLM did not inform the Suriname Aviation Department about its contract with ACI. Furthermore, no information about the qualifications and licensing of the American pilots was ever forwarded to the Aviation Department. So, Suriname themselves, Suriname Airways didn't even inform Suriname regulators, their aviation department in mm -hmm. Suriname, that they had a contract with ACI and that the pilots weren't local. So the country themselves didn't even know where these pilots came from, which is an issue. And to further that, the whole situation with training for these pilots, it turns out that ACI didn't train these pilots, nor did anybody. They relied on the pilots to ensure that they were up to date on their training. This is not how this works. This is not how any not of how this works. any of this works. If no one is making sure that these pilots are getting trained properly, they're not going to be trained properly. This is why, like, when we had the first officer's hour situation where we were like, we don't know. That's a big issue. That should have been red flag number one because that means that the airline and the contract company had no idea what their hours of their pilots were because they weren't keeping track of training because they weren't responsible for it. The pilots were responsible for it themselves. What company on earth for commercial aviation does that? None. The answer is none. That is insanity. There are whole massive departments in airlines that are devoted to crew scheduling, dealing with hours, training, making sure they're up to date with everything before they ever set foot in any cockpit at any time. This Ridiculous. A whole thing. And they're not doing any of that. None. They literally just like, yeah, these people, I don't know, they have a license. Go. Go. You're flying this airplane now. We'll pay you when you get back. It's so weird to me because we talk about a lot, especially nowadays, how United States trained pilots are some of the best trained pilots in the industry. A lot of that has to do with the fact that, I mean, we have so many regulations. It is now. To, <laughs> yes, it is to a point almost overly regulated, but it has proven to be very safe. So at some point, no, we're not wrong <laughs> in what we do. So, like, nowadays, if that were to happen, it'd be like, yeah, they're from the United States. They're fine. Yeah. Obviously. Which I would have assumed, except for the fact that they also weren't doing anything by the FAA standards either. Right. So, so it's not really the problem with the fact that they were, I mean, they were trained in the U.S. Obviously, they had a lot of hours that they had gained in the U.S., but then they decided to go work for a shady company that just basically paid them to do whatever. Yeah. And that's the problem. That's the real problem. Yeah. They basically worked for a staffing agency. Yep. Pretty much. 
That's pretty much it. That's all of the findings. Okay, well, the commission determines that as a result of the captain's glaring carelessness and recklessness... They put that right <laughs> there. They put that right there. Woo. Just I just want to call it the fact that no other probable cause has been ever been so, like, forward toward one particular person about being completely negligent. Anyway... That as a result of the captain's glaring carelessness and recklessness, the aircraft was flown below the published minimum altitudes during the approach and consequently collided with a tree. I would say several trees. Yeah, Yeah. but it started with one, so I get it. An underlying factor in the accident was the failure of SLM's operational management to observe the pertinent regulations as well as the procedures prescribed in the SLM operational manual concerning qualification and certification during the recruitment and employment of the crew members furnished by ACI. Entirely just about that It's whole just thing. surprising to me they didn't double check. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. They didn't say, they just went, oh yeah! Sure. Work. Why not? But they didn't double check one that this is a pilot they don't like and they don't want flying with them. Nope. That they have said specifically, do not send us this pilot anymore. Right. But two, that most of their requirements were not legal for the U.S., much less international right. flight. So there's four points of failure there. Really five, but four points of failure there. Oversight by the FAA of ACI. ACI themselves. Oversight of ACI by SLM, Suriname Airways. Oversight of Suriname over the whole thing. All of it. That. Oversight, that's the big period. Thing. And then there's the fifth thing, which is the pilots just not doing what they're not supposed to do. Yeah. But that's... I feel like, <laughs> that's though, a if, point you're gonna, at this point. if you're going to get paid to do something, you'll just do it. He's like, I've been doing this for so long, and you can't tell me I can't do this. And I'm just... I'm making a generalization, I realize that. But I feel like this would be the type of guy that did this, so... Unfortunately, it seems to be that situation. It's just bad. It's just bad. This just turned out bad. It was So just, bad. Everything about this was bad. So bad. It was so avoidable. It was 100% avoidable. Yep. From square one. Exactly. So there's a handful of recommendations, not very many, from the commission that did this. The commission of inquiry. The commission of inquiry. The Commission of Inquiry wishes to make the following air safety recommendations. The Commission's finding with regard to the lack of standardization in flight operations calls for improvements in the functioning of the company's organizational elements. Government surveillance of SLM must be strengthened. This is to the country of Suriname and their aviation department saying, you're not doing anything. Like, you're not looking at your airline. You're not even doing any kind of oversight of the pilots, the training, anything. You don't know anything about it. They didn't even know that the airline had hired a contract company to provide pilots to them. They had no idea. Not a clue. They didn't know who was flying the airplanes. They recommend that all airline companies operating in Suriname should have a properly staffed and functioning flight operations department that is familiar with the relevant regulations. This is only very important for every airline on Earth, to have an entire department devoted to regulations, understanding them, and understanding how that affects their operation, let alone tracking hours, training, and all those things. Mm Mm-hmm. They recommend that the aviation department wants to strengthen its surveillance, especially with regard to the operational performance of air carriers. Again, just their oversight. I'm not going to read number four. It's just about the weather conditions. They had all of the information they needed, so it seemed relatively irrelevant to me. Okay. Because it really wouldn't have fixed anything. They made the decision they made. End of story. And yeah, it, it is what it is. Yep. They recommend that a comprehensive disaster plan, including adequate equipment for agencies involved and an appropriate legal framework are essential for efficient and vigorous search, rescue, and investigation activities in connection with various types of disasters. What they don't really highlight there is firefighting equipment, but that is basically what they're getting at. 
rescue and firefighting operations just weren't adequate. Congrats, you found that recommendation. That's the entire recommendation section from the commission. Now, NTSB. Yes. Had recommendations for the FAA, which was published in an ICAO circular that I'm not going to go read through, but also contains the accident report from UA-232. Yep. Because that happened like a month later. Yep. Anyway, so I'm reading these directly from the Wikipedia page, but they are cited to be from the ICAO circular. They're legit. The NTSB recommends to the FAA to perform ramp and en route inspections of air carriers operating aircraft under Part 129 that are registered in the United States. They should have been regulated by the FAA, and they weren't. Yep. They recommend that the FAA require air carriers operating into the United States under Part 129 to provide the FAA with a list of names, dates of births, and certificate numbers of all captains and first officers operating airplanes into the United States. If pilots are found to have reached their 60th birthday, inform the air carrier that these pilots are not authorized to operate as either captain or co-pilot under the terms of the operations specifications issued in accordance with Part 129. Which we'll talk about briefly, but this age changed in the United States to 65. In 2007, I believe. Yes. So this is a different age now. This was to help with the incoming pilot shortage that they saw decades ago. And then their last recommendation to the FAA is to have the FAA promulgate rules to regulate United States companies that provide pilots by contract to international air carriers. So I equated this to a staffing agency. Regulate the staffing agency. Right. Especially yeah. if they're a foreign one. Well, I mean, this was an American one. Right. But point being, for a foreign carrier, on a flight that wasn't operated at any point in time in the United States. However, it wasn't a U.S. registered aircraft, which was really curious to me, and I really couldn't figure out why. But this aircraft was registered in the United States, not in Suriname. No idea. So that's what we got. That's all of it. Wow. That's rough. Yeah. Plenty of opportunities to not have this happen. Uh Uh-huh. 100% avoidable. Number one thing to me that they could have done to prevent all this is hire their own crew. What's so bad about that? That you have to make sure they're trained? I don't understand why that's so hard. That you have to pay them their wage. Which... Just, I don't know. I, also, I don't, I don't know what training looks like in Suriname, what training opportunities look like. Me neither, but that doesn't mean that they can't. I mean, this happens all the time, where they don't need a contract company to bring pilots in. They still they can hire a foreign crew and just make sure that they have over what's needed in Suriname. It's very possible. Yeah, then cut you out just the get, middleman. Then you just get them certified in Suriname, which doesn't take a whole lot. You just make sure that basically they can prove themselves. Usually in most countries, that's how it works. And then you put them in the cockpit. Emirates hires almost none of their crews from Dubai, for an example. They're directly hired by Emirates. Yeah. They fly for Emirates. But they are based in London. They are based in wherever. They're, they're, these crews are not UAE crews. So... I mean, it's the same thing. This happens all the time. It's not to say that Suriname couldn't get a crew from another country and certify them. That's true. But instead, instead they decided to hire a contractor who knew nothing about their pilots, and they didn't do any oversight. Nobody did any oversight. So the whole thing would have been fixed if they had just had some oversight, but also hired their own crew. Cut out the middleman. Cut out the staffing agency. Anyway. Just saying. Well, that's Suriname Airways 764. Thank you so much for listening to that very unfortunate flight. Yes. And I hate saying that, but honestly, like, these pilots, I mean, at least the captain probably knew he shouldn't have been flying. Everybody should have known better. And he, I don't know, it just seems like he just didn't care. Everybody, it was... Like, they kept putting him on the schedule, and he was like, all right, let's do this. And he couldn't fly the DC-8 because he wasn't certified on it. And 
He also was too old. It was... It's a whole bunch of mess I, that I just... I, I really hate to say it, but the, re- the report is very correct in saying blatant carelessness and recklessness. It is. <laughs> on, it is. On everybody's part, quite frankly. But yes, particularly the captain who knew all of these things that he was not doing correctly. I guarantee it. It's just unfortunate. Yes. Thank you so much for listening. As always, we're going to do a post-episode. Remember to listen to post-episodes. We got a lot of them. Yes. There's like 134 or something like that. Yes. You have to be at least a $5 patron or a business-level patron. Although, if you go up to first class, you get my episodes once a month. So You should do that. You should do that. They are actually really good. We've had some really good I cover really weird crashes. Yeah. <laughs> I really liked the last one you did. It was really, really good, actually. Oh, and it had a lot really to strange. do with an episode that we had already covered on a main episode. Uh-huh. So. Yes. But I like doing those because no one has ever heard of that or yeah, realized no one, I've what it is. I've never heard of it before. But it, it's just, ugh. You yeah. have to listen to it to know how yes. ridiculously... Like yeah, frustrating it was. So shameless plug, go listen. Go, yeah. Go sign up and listen. Even if it's just for a month, go sign up and go listen. Yeah. That being said, the blooper reels are on there. Like there's a bunch of stuff lately that's in the blooper reel. I, we have like 10 minutes of blooper reel. Oh my God. We've been. <laughs> thing I just <laughs> this edited. This episode alone actually is going to have a lot that you didn't hear. That's going to be in the blooper reel. We just had a rough, it's, some a rough of it's laughy really start. Funny start. So, and then as always, if you have any recommendations for Patreon inclusives, like something you want to be included in a level of Patreon, let us know. We don't always have the best ideas on what to include. We have a lot of stuff included on our Patreon, but yes, if you we do. ever have any more ideas, please let us know. Yeah. Thank you so much for listening. We appreciate it. We hope you have a safe and healthy week, and we'll catch you all next week. Keep your speed up. Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hard Landings Podcast and on Twitter at Hard Landings Pod. Subscribe and leave a five-star review on the platform you are using to listen. If you would like to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at hardlandingspodcast.com, where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions. This episode was researched and written by Nick and Christy. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us plus Leo. And our logo is by Naomi from Not a Monster, Not a Boogeyman. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.